Oh, well, here we are again. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back again to the Fat Paramotor Podcast. I'm Sean, Fat Paramotor Guy, and, of course, we've got Daniel Jones again, co-hosting again. Well, today we've got a great podcast for you. Um, We're going to be talking today about paramotor safety. Is paramotoring safe? What do you think? Daniel, what do you think? Is paramotoring safe? We could sum this up in a few little words, Sean, but what is safe? Yeah, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because nothing is safe, is it? Nothing is safe at all. You know, even uh, even picking flowers in your garden uh, is not safe. So I guess we talk about relative safety, don't we? You know, is um, uh, an acceptable risk. That's That's another word that we could use there. Um, nothing's ever going to be safe. Would you agree? Yeah, I'd agree with that. You know, there's um, you, you could do a normal everyday thing, and all of a sudden, some freak freak accident happens, and that thing then is unsafe. I guess um, to a degree. I read a uh, news article not that long ago where there was a guy. I think he was with his family, and he did a roly poly off the half in front of his open fire, and he uh, paralyzed himself from the neck down. Just by doing a roly-poly. A roly-poly, mate. I've never heard that phrase before. How cute. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. Well, that's it, isn't it? I mean, everything carries risk in life, but it's acceptable risk. And I think the the important thing about risk is to have some idea of the level of risk. You know, and I always say this, it's like people who free climb. You know, these, uh, these crazy people who will climb up a building or up a mountain and don't wear any safety gear at all or anything like that. Um, and you can call these people crazy, but at the end of the day, um, they understand the risks of what they do and, and, and they're prepared to take that risk. But in order to, to take risk, uh, to make decisions about these things, you've got to kind of have some idea about how risky something is. And paramotoring is, is one of those things that every time I tell people that I fly a paramotor or try to fly a paramotor, People always look at me with horror, as if to say, "God, you're a, you're a madman." Yeah, I, I get this, get the same reaction. But um, is it that risky? You know, people see you hanging from a few strings, but there's been so much design go into the wings to cr- make them more safe, especially nowadays when we've got you know the reflex profiles coming in, which are you know more more stable in in turbulent air um, as opposed to paragliders, where they'd have to actively pilot you are getting more and more safer equipment uh, the more technology develops. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, I mean, part of uh, what's happening with any sport is is kind of increasing the, the safety profile. And I know here in the UK, that's one of the things that the BHPA are, are interested in. It's, uh, it's analysing things and increasing the safety so there is a push towards safety, but I guess we've we've got to kind of think about you know what kind of things happens then when you when you're flying a paramotor. What, what's your experience, and what's the things that worry you the most when you're flying? Um, I think my worries have sort of subsided a little bit since um, my first beginning sort of years. I suppose I've been flying for about a year and a half now, as we've alluded to in other podcasts. Um, but I think now that that I've flown more i fear things less because i understand them um so i'll just talk about one of my more memorable flights from when i was quite low hours i went up in some choppy air and i will be honest it did scare me a bit and it was um probably one of my worst flights that i can remember but actually if i'd have flown in that air now 
I think my tolerance levels would have been much higher and it wouldn't have scared me as much. Um, I think probably the, one of the things I fear the most is actually sort of at busy airfields, at fly-ins, um, when people can come at you from any direction. And just recently, I've been back to the airfields. Um, and when it is busy, you know, you can't um, expect that person to avoid you. You have to fly quite defensively. And I think out of all the times I do fly, that's probably the highest risk unless I'm trying maybe, say, like an acro manoeuvre or something like that. But that's a separate matter altogether. Yeah. Okay. So because what I wanted to tr- kind of cover in this podcast is there's got to be sort of two elements to it here, Dan. Um, I mean, one, you know, let's let's talk about experience, our own fears, the things that we've seen and things like that. And then what I want to do a little bit later on is just actually look at some of the statistics see whether these back up some of our fears and things and maybe back up some of the fears of uh, listeners regarding paramotoring. I do have some statistics. I've looked at uh, some of the information from the BHPA. I've also read a couple of papers. Uh, There's a couple of papers from my own industry, which is medicine, uh, emergency medicine, and and, um, talking about sort of injury and stuff. We'll get into those. But, yeah, yeah, I I pick up there you're talking about the sort of the fear of mid-air collision. Uh, mid-air collisions, uh, they're quite worrying. And um, uh, it's one of the things that I know when I did my training, that you're constantly being taught uh, to have some awareness of, you know, that idea that you're always looking around for uh, for other aircraft in the sky. Uh, and even things like, you know, if you're going to be uh, turning left, for example, and this is one of the things I learned in light aviation as, as well as paramotoring, if you're going to make a left-hand turn, you would bank right first, so you can see underneath the left wing, and then uh, and then turn left, because otherwise you blind yourself by your own wing in the left-hand turn. So that's awareness of other things in the sky, and um, that is something that would cause me concern. Have you seen those guys when they're paragliding, Dan? You know, sometimes it's like a thousand of them all circling these thermals and things. Looks pretty <laughs> frightening to me. Huh? That, that freaks me out just how close they can possibly be um and and if you're flying at that level you you know you you must have a certain degree of skill but if one of those people hits someone else you know the chance of then taking out other people is probably quite high so it's not likely going to be two people involved it's going to be three or f- three or four when they're that close one of the local Aries and I lived at once, they had um, uh, a death there. That was actually from uh, people who were parachuting. And uh, the death actually came because it was a mid-air collision. Can you believe it? Two people jumped out of an aeroplane and uh, all that space in the sky ended up hitting each other. But it was amazing how a mid-air collision resulted in the deaths of both people. So that's quite quite worrying to me, having sort of a, a strike mid-air. And every time I've seen something on YouTube, and you have to be very, very careful, Dan, because... There is a bias uh, in accident reporting because we all like to see the grisly and the, and the gruesome. Nobody likes to see a video that's titled Safe Landing. Everybody <laughs> likes to watch the one, you know, <laughs> skydiver or paramotor dies, you know, in mid-air collision and things. But um, every time I see these mid-air collisions, they're, they're, they look pretty scary to me and uh, and often the results can be can be quite tragic. Yeah, they, they definitely look um, dramatic. And, and you're right, it's people's morbid curiosity that draws them into watching those videos and there if you were to put the two together like you say the one with the accident would get more views now some people 
want to analyze that and understand why it happened and others are just curious to see what actually happened and no absolutely and i think uh i think analysis of these things is key i mean that is something people like the bhpa and and sort of other uh, sporting uh, associations are interested in because um every accident is the opportunity to learn from the accident and to try and prevent somebody else from having the same thing so reflective learning uh we tend to call call that is you know sort of reflectively learn not only by your own mistakes but also from the mistakes of other people and i've seen you know there's um there's been a little bit of uh, there's been a bit out there in social media as well i know some people um have reviewed the accidents of uh, of other people uh, to try and uh, uh, make sense over the cause uh, of the injury and things like you know well what's your thoughts on that yeah i mean i mean tucker got does a lot of his reacting to crash videos i think you can look at that in a couple of um lights really um one of them being the skeptic side of me is oh he's going for more views but the other side of it is he actually does sit down and analyzes those accidents to hopefully teach people to look out for these problems that can occur. And usually their pilot error, they've clipped in wrong or it's they've been caught out in high winds or it has been a mid-air collision. So I think him having the audience that he does um, and other people who analyze their, their videos, um, such like I do as well, it does help a community learn and develop um, their skills so hopefully that'll be taken on board and, and and things do become safer through knowledge and not just the equipment like i alluded to earlier yeah you're absolutely right knowledge is key sometimes isn't it in um in understanding how these things go wrong and trying to prevent them from from happening yourself uh, sometimes they do instill fear though I'll, I'll be honest with you i think when i first started paramotoring i had no fear at all and and the more videos I watch, the more fearful I, I tend to get. Uh, and I'll tell you the thing that worries me the most about watching these things. It's okay, when it's pilot error, um, you can learn from that. And, you know, you can think, well, I'm going to make sure I don't make those mistakes when I'm flying a paramotor. Um, but the things that scare me is the things I worry about people not having control over. That's the real thing that scares me. You know, I think could I be flying along doing everything right and then could something catastrophic happen uh, that's absolutely no fault of my own? Uh, and that's one of the things that that, that that brings me a little bit of anxiety because if I feel as though I'm in control, um, I don't feel so scared. If I feel as I've got no control at all and this wing could collapse at any minute, that is something that brings me a level of anxiety. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. And I had um, a great, uh, amount of confidence instilled in me from my wing just recently through uh, trying a, a few acro maneuvers you know I'm starting to progress in my flying um, and this is kind of where you know is paramotor and safe begs the question because I'm pushing the envelope of what would be a safe flight to try and do something that you know is a bit out, out of the ordinary um, so I was um, doing some wing overs and i've sent you a video sean i don't know if you want to just play that and have a look through and, and see what see what your reaction is to is paramotoring safe in in that viewpoint Woohoo! <laughs> 
So a nice bit of a of a woohoo there. There's no feeling like knowing you're still alive and you shouldn't be. <laughs> so anybody that's listening just watched a, a clip of a video there. Is that you, Dan, then, doing um, doing wingovers? And, uh, yeah, this is me from last weekend, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it took a, a sort of an asymmetric collapse, and the left side of the wing collapsed. Into a downward spiral, and then the other tip collapsed as well. The first thing that I'll say there, just looking at the video, Dan, my, my first thoughts on that is it looks awfully low. Um, I mean, maybe that's just me, but you look quite low to the ground to start with. How high were you there? So I was about three and a half thousand feet there. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'd I'd got in my head that I was that was what I was going to go up to do. Yeah. Um, and I made sure that I definitely had enough altitude. If I was going to throw my reserve, I was going to float downwind back towards pretty much where the airfield was. Um, so I was going to be closer to sort of civilization as it was in Lincolnshire, being that. It's pretty much agricultural fields. Um, and I knew what manoeuvre I was doing and there was no one about. I'd done a proper good look round, made sure the airframe and everything was, was correct. So in a sense, I made that as safe as I possibly could. However, doing those manoeuvres is not recommended by any wing manufacturer. It's, you know, wings are designed to go straight and level. Um, and then I think anything past that, like acro manoeuvres, you know, that's that's an uncertified manoeuvre. I might be wrong wrong in that, but, you know, I'm taking a uh, an activity out of its comfort zone, of it, as it were, but I've made it as safe as I possibly could. There's a couple of things I think that, I mean, if you're doing acro, uh, there's a, a, an elevated uh, amount of risk involved in it, but I think that's some of the excitement that people get. It's like people on a motorcycle who decide to do wheelies down the road or, uh, bomb around at 100 miles per hour on a racetrack or whatever. It's uh, it's done because there's increased adrenaline because of the of the increased risk. Uh, I would say as well that when it comes to doing acro, you are pushing the limits uh, of what you're doing to the extreme on purpose, and it's to kind of know the limits of what you're going to do. And when you're learning to acro, um, you are going to over push things and things like that are going to happen. So the way that I actually see that myself, Dan, is I think anybody who is interested in doing any kind of acro should expect to have that kind of thing happen, Yeah, which I guess is why you make sure you uh, you have the reserve. Uh, and yeah. I think even I've, I've heard people talk about having two reserves if you're doing acro, um, that you should be at the right height and you take all the precautions because um, if you don't get a collapse, then you've not really pushed the envelope, perhaps, of what you're capable of doing, which is why most people do it. So so we're ameliorating risk there. We're trying to, aren't we? We're doing something a little bit more risky. Yeah. And and I say we, that's the royal we. That was you, Dan. I'm not doing <laughs> that, you mad sod. But um, we, you know, you, and you're going to ameliorate that risk with certain safety procedures like, um, you know, like reserves. Um, uh, doing things at altitude and perhaps also having the uh, the right wing uh, to do that and things. I, I'm I'm not an expert on wings. I thought it was a Dudek. Um, yeah. What rated wing was it? Um, so that's the Dudek WRC 27 meter, and I think it's rated at um, C if I if I'm not mistaken. Um, but the problem the problem is is that the maneuvers I was doing, and this is where all my other mitigation sort of got a bit let down by actually my wing choice. I'm very, very light on that wing, um, being that I weigh in with my paramour and, and about five five litres of fuel, I weigh in about 
95 kg. The bottom of that weight range, I think, is about 90. So I'm right at the bottom end. It's a very floaty wing, but I, I fly it for the economy. It's not designed realistically for doing any acro maneuvers. I'd be better off on the Roadster 1 that I have that I'm actually at the higher end of the their weight range, which is a bit more of a, a paraglider profile. So if it collapses, it's going to pop out a bit more, whereas WRC being a reef reflex profile if it has a collapse and as you've just seen going into a nose down spiral is um it collapsed quite dramatically but that's li likely through my uh poor piloting skill and not actually pulling off wing overs as, as best as i could um why it did did collapse it's 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 interesting because when i did um my paramotor training as i said before we were actually taught to fly, fly paragliders uh initially and then it progressed to sort of paramotoring or there was a a big element of paragliding uh in the course and the course i think it was initially aimed at paragliders and um taking collapses asymmetric collapses amongst paragliders uh, tends to be something that, that also happens fairly regular. But the danger, uh, the way that I was taught it, is not, uh, you know, so much collapsing and, and hitting the ground. It's more the alteration of course. And uh, so what can happen is if you're trying to fly, fly around the mountain, you know, using the compression zone as a paraglider, you take a collapse uh, of your wing, it can steer you into the uh, into the mountain or or even into somebody else. So a lot of the um, things that we were taught were really more about course correction. You know, the wing collapses, you correct your course, you keep the wing straight and level, and then you sort out the collapse where it sorts itself out. This is one of the things I think is kind of borne out by some statistics that we, we'll talk about a little bit uh, a little bit later is is that a lot of accidents appear to be caused by people pushing the limits and a lot of the deaths tend to be caused by people pushing the limits at low altitude uh, and this is the issue i think we've talked about this before personally Dan, haven't we in that there's something strange that happens with the psyche it feels safe to be close to the ground but uh, and feels more scary to be higher. But in actual fact, those things are, are completely the wrong way around. Safety is at altitude because if anything happens at altitude, there is plenty of time to sort it out or for it to sort itself out. Uh, whereas if anything happens at low altitude, there's no time at all. You are uh, you're, you're at the mercy of um, of fate. Yeah, and it's a lot of luck involved at that point. You know, you really, really do need to know. Um, exactly what's going to happen when you pull a certain brake line or tip steer or anything down low because yeah like you're saying we have definitely covered that you feel safer being about 500 foot up because you are closer to the ground it's probably because you're what, what's what you're used to you know walking around and driving a car and stuff when actually you know like like my event just then three and a half thousand feet it felt like eight to ten seconds in the air it was realistically about two seconds um but had so much time because i had the height you know it's um you are so much safer up up high um for things like that but you know i think it's the adrenaline thing that um gets people going when they're close to the ground there's also a bit of a show-off, isn't it, that's involved, I think. You know, the, the times I've seen it, somebody tanks off in his paramotor and his, uh, his attractive girlfriend's watching from the ground. 
Uh, and as soon as he's off, he's banking that hard turn, you know, and uh, uh, all looking sort of very spectacular, whooping and, and those kind of things. But it's those kind of antics, I think, that um, that are more dangerous. Now, I won't criticise anybody for doing that because I won't. People make their own choices. But I think, again, we've we've alluded to this in previous podcasts that if you are doing them, if you are doing low-level antics, steep banks, all that kind of thing, um, you have to understand that the risk is high. If you want to take that risk, I'm, I'm completely that's that's completely fine, um, and I wouldn't question you for doing that. But it's important that you understand that I believe as a paramotor pilot um, that these low-level activities do carry more risk of of, of death with them. Uh, in my opinion, yeah, and I think just just to um, uh, build on that as well, I think that the people that are going to do low level stuff, um, and I'm you know I'm guilty of myself for doing foot drags and stuff like that. You do also need to understand that you might actually be imposing your risk profile onto other people if it's a busy area. Um, there was a uh, a video posted on the Facebook group very recently of a pilot on a free ride coming in and doing a wing tip touch impressive maneuver but that person actually flew through their wake took a uh, tip collapse and then smashed into the ground they were so close to people and so close to a road that they were extremely lucky that they didn't kill or maim anyone else in the area i think they walked away from it but it's um yeah i think people need to be aware of that risk profile being projected onto bystanders as well now this this is uh, this brings me on to something very very interesting and and you're absolutely right you know I mean maybe you know when when a person is flying in that manner um, was uh, aware of the risk to his or herself uh, and that's fine but might not have been aware of the risk to other people because the reason I mention this is an interesting statistic um, and that is that people who fly tandem paramotors and paragliders because the statistics don't really separate um, I don't believe but people who fly uh, tandem flights um, are far less likely to have uh, an injury or a death than people who fly uh, single mm. and the reason that that is um, is suggested is that people who fly tandem are aware of the safety of the soul that's on board. So, you know, when you're flying with somebody else, you're kind of, well, I don't mind taking risks with my own life, but I've got somebody else strapped in with me now, and, and therefore I'm not going to be taking any risks. I'm going to make sure everything's fine. So that's quite an interesting statistics, and that would suggest to me then, um, if those statistics bear out, that... A lot of accidents that happen with solo pilots are happening because they are taking risks that they would not find acceptable if they had somebody else's life in their hands. I think that's right, mate. You know, when you take a tandem um, passenger up for a flight, and I'm, I'm yet to do it. I'd love to learn how to do tandem flights uh, later in my flying career. Um, but you're likely not one again to scare the shit out of them as well. You know, if it's their first flight, you're probably going to go for a nice straight and level. The wind conditions going to be lovely as well. And you're going to take a trip out to the coast, if the coast is near you, that is. Um, and just have a nice bimble around, which is fundamentally what paramotoring is in its safest form. You know, we're not flying in midday thermals or anything like that, even though, like you say, paragliders 
they'll probably launch from i think in in turkey they do a lot of um tandem flights as well but um i think they use a lot of ridge lift if i'm if i'm correct but uh still um it's it's done on the safer end of things and if you have got that person in front of you yeah i think you you you're a bit more conscious of of them well the the, the statistic comes from uh from a paper so this is from the uh, the World Journal of Emergency Medicine, 2015, and the paper is called "The Characteristics of Injuries Caused by Paragliding Accidents," and it's a cross-sectional study. Uh, and one of the results of that study uh, was uh, that the rate of paragliding accidents is significantly higher uh, in individual flights than in tandem flights, and that has a p number. If anybody knows about statistical significance of less than 0.05, which suggests that it is a uh, statistically significant uh, finding. Um, and it's, again, it's alluded to uh, people tend to make unnecessary acrobatic moves when flying as an individual, uh, which maximises the risk of an accident. So that, I thought that was quite interesting. So, um, uh, you know, maybe if you want to fly safe, then maybe we should all carry somebody with us, eh? <laughs> Or just imagine you've got someone with you as well. You know, if you can't find someone to to rope into your flying, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, mate. Yeah, that's 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 a good idea. Just pretend that you've got somebody with you. I know it was always um, kind of a key performance indicator, a measure. You know, when when I learned to fly private aircraft, I remember the um, the examiner at the time when I was in my general flight test saying that the marker set by the CAA is that you had, as an examiner, uh, to be able to declare that you were happy for that person to fly with a member of your family with them. And uh, there's a good marker, isn't it, you know, that uh, yeah. uh, sort of that, that level of safety and things. Did you know as well, now I've looked, um, the BHPA, that's British for anybody that knows our sort of uh, British Hang Gliding and Paramotoring or Paragliding Association, isn't it, I think? Yeah, Paragliding. Yeah, yeah um, that the number of, uh, of accidents uh, is actually increasing. Did you know that, Dan? I didn't know that as fact, but um, it doesn't surprise me with the amount of people I've seen uptake in the sport since, you know, since I've started. Um, the sport's been going for yeah quite some years now. Uh, I couldn't give you an exact date, um, but uh, yeah, no, it, definitely in the time that I've been flying, the uptake seems to be quite a lot. Yeah. I will say at this point now, uh, I will thank the BHPA for, for providing uh, statistics and some data analysis. I will say kindly to the BHPA because because uh, I do appreciate what's done, uh, but the level of, of analysis on the data that they've got is actually pretty poor. It's, it's quite difficult to read through their stuff and actually take anything away from it that's clini uh, clinically or uh, you know statistically uh, significant and things. It was quite a difficult read reading their accident reports, and they do make uh, quite a few biased statements that, that where they, they don't actually understand the data that they're presenting themselves. But as I said, I, I won't beat them up too much because uh, very grateful for, for for what they do and stuff. But but yes, you know they reported 2018. That's the latest statistics. I think we've got new statistics due to be coming out soon. Um, 
but there were 203 uh, reported uh, accidents in total and 138 of those resulted in injuries if uh, if I'm right there they do say the BHPA say that they've seen this increase in accidents um, but they don't make any claims to know the reason for the increase but they have alluded to a couple of things one uh, is the increase in the uptake of the sport. Now, this is one of the reasons that I find the paper difficult to to analyse because they don't actually tell you the numbers of, uh, of of membership on this paper. It might be there somewhere in their site. I did have a quick look. I couldn't find it. But I don't know what the increase in membership has been. Now, increase in membership of the BHPA is not the same number as the number of people who are flying paramotors or paragliders, for example. But it is a representative proportion. You can uh, allude that, um, or you can infer that if the number of pilots uh, who are registered with the BHPA is doubled, then um, the number of paramotor pilots is likely doubled as well. Uh, it's a weak association, but you, you know you, you could make that um, you know, that statement. Um, but they don't tell you, so I can't see how many more pilots they've actually uh, got and whether that is proportionally representative. But there's another statistic as well. You might be interested yeah. in this, Dan, or another reason that they're also suggesting that uh, cross-country flying is becoming more popular. Mm. Therefore, pilots are increasing their flying hours, which is yeah. increasing the number of accidents. Yeah, that's, that is interesting. And I mean, I, I certainly am very keen cross-country pilot myself um I, I don't know why the trend has has led to that that sort of uh flying style but i would have thought that you know if you are flying early hours of the day or in the evening flying cross-country regardless of the hours it's usually the launch and land where you're going to do any sort of damage or have an accident um unless you're flying in like mountainous terrain maybe which could mm. be cause other issues um, fortunately, um, Lincolnshire is quite flat where I do most of my flying, so I haven't really got to worry about that. But um, yeah. especially in like springtime as well, I suppose you've got the the thermals that pick up, and that'll catch you out after a bit of a layoff over winter. Mm. Um, but I would have thought, you know, generally cross country flying is a bit more safer than the general just having a wang about an airfield. Maybe I I might be wrong. I, yeah, hopefully, no, you've no. got some stats on that, Sean. Have you or? Well, no, but this is interesting. You see, this is where, you know, the, the data is kind of missing. There's a big part of me because I, you know, I learned numbers and figures. It makes me wonder whether they ought to give me their statistics because um, <laughs> I, I love these kind of things. But you're absolutely right. So, you know, they've, they've uh, you know, made this implication that um, increase in flying hours might be, they've not said that it is, that it might be responsible, you know, for the increase in accidents. However, you're, you're right. You know, what percentage... Uh, of accidents happens in takeoff and landing compared to sort of mid-flight. That data's missing because there's still the same number of takeoffs and landings. In actual flight, you could argue there's less in cross-country flight because if you're making a a four-hour a four cross-country journey, say for example, that's a long one, isn't it? But uh, let's yeah. say it's, it's you know <laughs> let's say it was two it was a two-hour cross-country journey then. Um, in two hours, you've got one takeoff and landing. Whereas if you're at an airfield for two hours, you might actually take off and land four or five times. So, Absolutely. so these, these, you know, these, this is data BHPA. 
let's get this data out. Send me the data. I'd uh, I'd I'd love to, uh, to to get my teeth stuck into some of this. That'd be really good to see, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, so interesting. But but the number of accidents is going up. So what about then, what do you think, Dan, about safety of paramotoring compared to paragliding? What's your thoughts on that? I would hazard a guess that paramotoring is likely safer in the flying aspect. Um, but when it comes to equipment, probably more dangerous, simply because, you know, we've had in the past a lot of people ground starting hopefully that's been phased out by most people nowadays so you know you've got that chance of injury there on the ground whereas i i would have thought the actual flying is probably safer for paramotoring because you've you, you've got essentially a, a free thermal on your back you know you don't need to hunt out thermals midday where it's going to be quite choppy air or you're not flying close to terrain unless you fancy being a bit of speed flying but um i would have thought that paragliding you you've got a higher risk because you have to hunt out those thermals and fly ridges to get your lift and, and essentially have those two hour flights whereas you could do that quite easy by squeezing the trigger on your paramotor is that is that fair to say, Sean? Do you think that's that's right? Do the figures show that that's true? Or Dan, you know, nobody likes a smart ass. You know that, don't we? Especially <laughs> from a young whippersnapper and things like that. But but yeah, I, you know, I I think you've you've hit it bang on from from the data that that I'm seeing. Now, we'll say there's um there's a popular website that gives out statistics. I, I won't give them a mention because. Um, you know, I, I've I've dissed the BHPA. I don't want to diss somebody else, but <laughs> but on that website, they uh, they inaccurately um, state that paramotoring is safer than paragliding, and th- that apparently is is not borne out by the by the literature uh, at all. So again, as you know, I like my um, uh, medically related papers. That that is my game. So this uh, uh, was. Um, produced in 2014. It was published in the British Medical Journal uh, on paramotoring and its accidents and injuries related to powered paragliding, uh, another cross-sectional study. Uh, I know this paper, I know it quite well because I've posted this before on Reddit and I've I've discussed it before in the past. But the paper uh, clearly states here that the number of fatal accidents in powered paragliding, and, and I guess that's the mark they were looking at there, is not lower than in paragliding and in hang gliding, which is interesting because I always thought hang gliding was super, and people have told me that, but the data is not holding that out at all. Now, uh, again, without quoting every little bit, there is evidence that suggests that you're absolutely right, that the mid-air flying tends to be slightly safer with paramotoring for the reasons that you said. You're limited to sort of your flying days, aren't you? And the paragliders are even more limited. So they they, they tend to take more risks with weather. Um, they have to jump off mountains. I mean, you can get towed, but they generally jump off mountains that carry inherent risk with uh, rotor, turbulence, uh, you know, t- topography, all those kind of things. Whereas a paramotorist... Uh, because there are more opportunities for flying, you know, you can basically drive down um, half an hour away to a field and take off with a paramotor. You don't have to arrange this big journey to drive off, you know, to go off into the Peak District and things like that. There are more opportunities to fly, so you tend to pick safer opportunities. 
you will tend to fly, you know, when the uh, the weather's uh, safer, when there's a little bit less wind uh, and such like. So, so the actual flying is safer. What's more dangerous, it seems, is danger from two things. One is um, is the danger from the actual engine itself and the propeller, uh, but also the weight on landing. You're more likely to damage lower limbs. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you. So, so here in power paragliding, forty-four and a half percent of injuries was related to the upper limb. That's nearly half. Forty-four point five percent upper limb injuries. So you know, and a lot of those are are prop strikes. Um, yeah. But you know, there are other upper limb injuries because people fall over with a heavy paramotor on the back. And then they, they do what's called fall with an outstretched hand, which we uh, in the trade call. Yep. <laughs> yep. And that's known as foosh, fallen on an outstretched hand. Yep. So uh, foosh. So that's a foosh injury. And uh, so, so they're quite common. Lower limbs as well. That's, you know, that's your legs. <laughs> for, those who, for those who don't know. Um, 32%. So 32% of paramotoring injuries uh, affects the lower limbs. It's quite interesting. The back is only 9.8%. Um, it's still, you know, it's, you know, one in 10 ish, isn't it? But the back's not the major problem. The head's relatively low at 7%. And I will say that's also borne out by the BHPA's um, uh, analysis as well, where they felt as though head injury now was becoming um, relatively insignificant. And the reason for that being, Dan, mm. for sure they're smart arse with this. <laughs> Probably wearing helmets, I'd have thought. Yeah. Yes. Apart from when you plaster them with GoPros and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, that, you know, that, that brings me on to something else. That was something that I was taught. Uh, again, when I was learning to fly, I always remember feeling that uh, that my instructor, Matt Fox, was a grumpy old bugger and he's not that mm-hmm. old and stuff. And it turns out he wasn't because I was there as, you know, uh, as this new paramotor pilot and uh, or paramotor student wanting to get as much footage as I could for my, you know, for my YouTube channel, yeah. as you do. And he's like... No, mate, you're not wearing that because that's my Australian accent. You ain't wearing that GoPro on your helmet, mate. And I'm like, why not? It's, I know, mate, it's a safety issue. But, but it really is because, you know, it's like it is, yeah. um, you get those lines stuck in your uh, in your helmet and things. And uh, I was really, he, he didn't like me getting the camera out, I remember. And at the time I was like, oh, bloody hell, I want to get as much footage as possible. Yeah. Uh, but everything that he said was completely right, even from the, uh, you know, then I wanted the camera in my pocket to take it out and video. And he's like saying, now, mate, I'll go through the prop. You know, and he's, uh, and he's, and he's, he was right, you know, but, uh, but yeah, cam- cameras on the bloody helmet, mate. What do you reckon to that, eh? Well, I mean, look at Michael Schumacher. I think he was skiing with a GoPro on, was he? And then he was, uh, in, in a coma for God knows how long. I think they attributed his, uh, fall and the, and the GoPro to that, didn't they? Is that is that right? Am I remembering that correctly? I don't know. I've never, I mean, obviously I know Schumacher and, you know, I know he ended up in a, in a bad way uh, because of his accident, but uh, I didn't realise the, the GoPro was, had been cited as the problem. But. Yeah, I think it was, I think they sort of pointed the finger in that direction that because it was attached to the side of the helmet when he fell on it, it was a point of impact. So it's almost like a sharp yeah. object going in really. Um, so that's definitely a consideration um, for if you're going to wear a, a GoPro on your helmet, as well as just it being a snag hazard anyway. Yeah, well, do you know, I got 
I got a bit of footage when I was learning to fly, you know, because I stuck them in my videos. You know how I did that, Dan? Snuck it in. <laughs> no, well, I, I put a chest cam on and then mm. put a jacket over the top and zipped it up so you couldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> and then when I, when I got to height, I unzipped my jacket, you know, and started the camera. <laughs> We're our so, own worst enemies, really, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, <laughs> and it makes you wonder what the safety profile of a YouTuber is, because how much time do you bugger about, you know, with your camera equipment and things like that, when you should be concentrating on your flying? Yeah, I was going to come on to this, um, so I'm glad you said that. Do you think that paramotoring makes you a bit lazier of a pilot because you haven't got to seek out the thermals and look where you're going all the time as opposed to paraglider pilots you know they've got to physically keep their mental you know concentration on where's the lift coming from how can i stay up and and buoyant whereas we we like i said earlier we just squeeze the trigger and we go do you think that makes us more lazy i i kind of think it does you know well it's interesting because you know um anthony vella uh, mentioned this if you remember in last week's podcast for anybody that's not heard that the uh, the awesome anthony vella was uh, was a guest of the show last week check out that podcast but you know he was talking about us being paramotor pilots in the uk and he just saw himself as a uh, as a paramotorist because he didn't feel the association with being a pilot he just kind of felt as though he was floating around with a with a fan on his back and you know maybe he's right in a way that a lot of people flying paramotors don't see it uh, as aviation um i mean i kind of do that i'll be honest with you. i see paramotoring as as aviation and um and i see that it you know it's it should attract the same kind of uh standards and skills that you you would expect of any kind of a pilot but i suspect there's a lot of people out there who just don't see it like that at all and i think reading some of the comments i've seen in some of the social media and some of the some of the arrogance that you see now and again in there um, probably does allude towards that, uh, you know, Dan, that, that some people don't have that same, um, I don't know, professionalism is the wrong word, isn't it? But I think some people just are kind of, mm. well, lazy. D does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah, and you do see some people who think they're above the law in a, in a certain sense for, for paramotoring. And it's, you know, it's strange, Sean, like sometimes I see paramotoring as, you know, full on aviation. Oh, I've got this airspace here and I've got to pay attention to this. And other times I see it more as sort of like, you know, going out on like a motorbike or something like that and just having a sort of a bit of a bimble round and, and not taking it as, as seriously. I think I get a bit complacent is probably the right word for it when I know the area and I'm just either like you know doing a bit of comp training or, or testing out like a new app or something like that um so yeah it's, it's interesting that i kind of see it in a few different lights and i can see how easy it would be for people to just disregard it as proper aviation which it you know it is, it is. we are bound by air law it also makes you wonder whether there's a, a Dunning-Kruger effect that goes on with paramotoring. Oh, definitely. <laughs> and do you know, I, I, I do feel very definitely as if there is with was with me, because I think when I first started paramotoring, it was all confidence and no bloody skill. Um, and then I hit this uh, this dip, and I really did. And, and uh, that was post me having an accident, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a, in a little while. But yeah, yeah. Um, after that, that accident um, really knocked the wind out of my sails. It wakes you up, doesn't it? Yeah. And it reminds me, uh, I heard Woody mention this on one of his videos, talking about something else once, talking about a fear injury. And I always found that 
that concept. Never heard that before. I found mm. it fascinating that my main injury from that accident was the fear that happened afterwards. Right. Um, but but I but I realised that you know it, that's kind of the Dunning Kruger because if you see with Dunning Kruger, if you see some of the graphs to do with it, you, you start off with this high confidence but low ability. Yeah. And then your confidence, when you realize suddenly that your ability is shockingly poor after you've spent years and months, <laughs> if not years, believing that you're a super, you know, you're, you're a superstar and uh, using the word super there very carefully. <laughs> um, you know, that you, because um, some people never actually get beyond the first Dunning-Kruger arrogance, do they? But <laughs> But, you know, you, then you end up in this, what they call the well of, of, of despair. Yeah. And, you know, where you kind of, oh, my God, I'm really useless at this and what a tit I've been making mm. of myself and things. Um, and then it's a slow climb out of that to confidence, but that confidence then comes with experience and, uh, uh, and things. And I guess I'm on that journey now. I'm, I'm not far mm. for the bottom of the well of despair, but, <laughs> um, uh, but climbing up. And I think that happens in paramotoring. And I think there are so many people out there that are at that first stage of super confidence and very, very mm. low ability. It, I, yeah, there's definitely a Dunning-Kruger effect. Um, and you see it all the time, you know, newer pilots at the airfield, that they're like, oh, yeah, I can do all this stuff now. They have a scare. And then all of a sudden, they're back to, oh, yeah, maybe I should be a bit more careful. And like you said, you've you've experienced it. I've definitely experienced it. Um, and uh, like my instructor, Mike Chilvers, um, said to us, like, well, probably on one of the first few days, you know, you've got two bags. One's a bag of luck and one's a bag of skill. You better hope that your your bag of skill fills up before your bag of luck empties. You know, it's it's so true because it's so easy to get overconfident with flying because it's such a yes. rush. And it's not really that difficult to do. Once you've got your ground handling to do and you're and your launch, launching, you know, it, the rest seems quite easy until you do scare yourself, like you say. Mm. So what was your what was your um, scare you had, Sean? Yeah, so, so I've, actually, I've done a video on this, not a great video, um, um, but I did a bit of a brief video on it. And, and basically what happened, there was out uh, ground handling. I mean, this was just it. Mm. This was ground handling. And I was strapped into um, uh, to, to the wing uh, that I'd been ground handling forever. And it was my own wing, my own roadster too. I'd got no paramotor on my back or anything. And it was really bizarre because what happened is I'd, you know, I got used to this wing. I'd, I must have spent, you know, well over 10 hours ground handling it at this stage. And suddenly, you know, the the wing, you know, when you, I, I'd kind of got the, you know, the A's in my right hand and the D's in yeah. my left hand. And I got the pushing the A's as far forward as possible. And normally the wing just sits on the ground and something started to happen. And the, the wing started to um, uh, to sit up, to stand and make a wall, even though. I'd got my hands forward. And you know when things, I don't know how to explain it, but when you get used to things working in a certain way, these little alarm bells go off when it's not doing what it's told mm. and what's supposed to happen. And I can remember thinking that, thinking, ah, what's, what's going on here? Uh, I really then tried hard to push the A's forward and, um, you know, and really sort of sit the wing back and pull backwards on the brakes. And the really, wing wouldn't go back down on the ground. And I was just about to stop turning the wing to turn it into the into sort of the wind to sort of deep out and get rid of it because I didn't like it you know I, I like just to be able to left hand into my chest right hand yeah. forward and the bloody wing just collapse and, and, and the part and it wasn't 
And I was just starting to turn and the wing just inflated, slap. I mean, I heard it almost flap like that. Mm. And it just shot across the ground, pulling me. And it dragged me. God, it must have been, it felt like 100 metres. And uh, I really was being just dragged along, uh, along the ground. Luckily, it was along the ground. And it dragged, you know, one of the worst things that happened is it, it pulled uh, the brake lines. I said it pulled the yeah. brake lines out. It didn't, I yeah. dropped them, mate. That was, Ooh. I was like, oh, gee. And I just kind of let go of these bloody brake lines in, in the, shit, what's happening? Mm. Um, so I'm hurling across the ground. And I remember trying then to grab hold of uh, the brake lines on one side, I did, to sort of pull the wing in to get hold of the yeah. wingtip. And I kind of got it halfway in. And I felt as though I was slowing down, so I was still scooting across the ground. Uh, and then it reinflated. It pulled the lines out of my hand, burnt. I got all these blister burns Ooh, on my yeah, hand, yeah, pulled can, it out yeah. again. And I looked down. I looked down at my arm. I could see all blood all over my arms and things. Christ. And I kind of knew that I was in trouble. And um, so I grabbed hold again uh, of the lines, pulled harder this time and grabbed hold of the wingtip. And as soon as I did that and pulled the wing in, it just all deflated. And apparently what had happened, I mean, I didn't know, but there was uh, another guy at the airfield who would come bombing after me and stuff, mm. uh, said it was a dust devil. And and this was in Australia, Christ. mate. So it was uh, yeah. like a, a thermal dust devil. And it had picked up and just grabbed hold of the wing and took it with me. Wow. You know, um, I mean, and that, you know, it, it shook me up because it made me, I just thought, you know, Flying's the danger, but this wing here just does what I tell it to do. And I and I, I developed a few, um, you know, I say skills, mm. very low level skills, but still enough yeah. skills you would think to, to handle the wing. And it just showed me the power and the danger, even even in this wing, you know. And um, that was that was my fear injury. Wow, I mean, Mother Nature's got a way of of teaching you a lesson sometimes, doesn't she? I mean, well, she pulled my pants down and smacked me ass that day, <laughs> mate. Yeah. That's... <laughs> It sounds terrifying. I've, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'd attribute that to a Dunning Kruger effect because you're not doing anything. You weren't like trying to do anything smart. It would just, you know, it just picked up and, and got you. But I think you're right. You know, it's like a, a the fear of the the damage that you'd done previously. And I've reflected so many times on that. I think you know the one lesson I got out of that is don't let go of the brake. If I'd have just hold mm. on to one brake and wrapped it around my hand and just pulled and pulled and pulled on yeah. one break. It would bring the tip in. Thank goodness it was a big open field. I can't believe if they were dragging me over rocks or, you know, things like that, I would have, it would have caused me a lot of injury. I was just dragged uh, on my elbows, basically, on my face, just being dragged across the ground. But that goes back to a similar situation that I was saying when I was doing wingovers early, earlier in the podcast that, you know, you you pick the the location you're going to do these things um, to minimise the amount of risk, don't you? Oh, you try to, and then you try uh, to, <laughs> and then learn from these things. Yeah. Uh, but it made me a very nervous mm. pilot afterwards. It, it knocked the confidence out of mm. me, and uh, uh, to be quite honest with you, but maybe then it gave me a healthy, uh, a healthier respect um, of what was going on. And maybe it'll, it'll be that hopefully touch what he says to, you know, to keep me safe. And I think it's, it's pilots who don't have that, who have the arrogance, that Dunning crew arrogance at the beginning. Mm. Maybe they're the ones that are likely to get hurt. And, and which brings me into another statistic then, you know, this is again, the BHPA, um, a little bit of, um, uh, self-promotion in this for the BHPA, but looking at their accident statistics, 
So according to the BHPA statistics, between 2016 and 2018, there were eight fatal paramotor accidents, mm. not paragliding, paramotor, okay, PPG. And only one of them, read into this how you will, but only one of these was a BHPA member. And of course, you can only be a BHPA member if you've done the training. So I thought that was a staggering statistic that seven out of eight people killed by a paramotor between 2006 and 2018 had not had BHPA formal mm. training. I mean, the, going through the BHPA system myself, you know, I can vouch for it being a very thorough um, system, but, you know, there, it doesn't ever account for, and nor does any training syllabus, what you then do after your training, you know, like I keep going back to it. You know, I went out and did those wing overs on my own intuition. I went and did that, you know, but that's not what you're, you're taught to do. Um, unless you're physically seeking out like, um, an acro course or going and doing an SIV to understand how your wing will collapse and recover. Um, you know, like there, it's, it's an interesting figure and it'd be quite interesting to see how that is like it, like this year, once, you know, we've got through this year, because last year was a bit of a funny year. So we kind of uh, sort of put that one aside a little yes. bit um, with, with COVID and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see with the, the higher uptake of the sport nowadays, what the, uh, the, the statistic is mm. nowadays. Well, let me tell you something else again, 2016 to 2018, because we're going to come on to, uh, to wing loading in a little bit, which you alluded to earlier. But two of those eight pilots were killed in mid-air collisions. Yeah, so, you know, so that's uh, a fair, fair amount of, uh, of people. That's 25%. My fear right there. <laughs> yeah. When I did my training, which I think is very similar to the BHPA, I did mine in Australia. As I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, uh, a lot of that was being taught how to avoid mid-air collisions. And it wasn't just avoiding mid-air collisions by you know, taking off at the right time, keeping, you know, a good peripheral awareness, situational awareness uh, around you. Uh, but it was also taught how to handle and manage things when they go wrong so you don't hit other pilots. So, you know, the whole idea behind how they trained you with an asymmetric collapse um, was to stick in that brake to prevent you from veering off your course sharply and, and flying into the paraglider the, who's next to you or even into the mountain. These are the things that you wouldn't learn to do, are they, if you didn't take a course like you do with the BHPA? Just out of interest, Sean, you, you said it was um, one out of, out of the eight. Do we know if any of the other seven were in a, another training association or whether they were just self-taught or is that statistic there, do you know? It, it, it's not there because, of course, the BHPA just talks about its membership. It's not qualified in the data. Again, you know, if, uh, a more thorough report might do, but I, I again, you know, I've, I've dissed the report a little bit, don't mean to be, you know, it's, but, you know, obviously somebody's put a lot of work into it anyway, and I don't know whether these are paid positions in the BHPA or whether they're volunteers, I don't know. But anyway, two were mid-air collisions. One was only a BHPA member, and yes, that doesn't tell us whether people hadn't had uh, training of, of any other kind. One pilot was warming his engine on the ground, and it killed him. Wow. So one of the eight was actually warming his engine Ooh. on the ground. Uh, and again, what do they say uh, on the back or on the rack? Exactly. And there's a re there's good reason for it, you know, and there's still people nowadays that will argue that some some motors are safe to start on the ground. And I, you just you just can't. Why would you ever 
have that risk. It goes back to reduce the amount of risk that there possibly is. And that's what ultimately makes it safer, isn't it? Yeah. I remember watching a video of uh, of an instructor in the States. I won't mention his name. He likes guns and God as well, apparently, and flies paramote, uh, the Morris Minor of paramotors. I can remember a video where he was really dissing people who were alluding to the idea that paramotors were dangerous to ground start. That's not borne out by the statistics. Uh, in in a couple of papers, uh, including that from the BHPA, uh, a warning is about starting on the ground. And, and I'll tell you a little bit more uh, sort of about that in uh, in a minute. Um, just quickly then, uh, six pilots who died, six of the eight that died. So bearing in mind one died on the ground. All right. So this is actually six of seven pilots. Um were flying small gliders with high wing loading. Mm. And the wing loading was ranging from 6.6 to 7.7 square meters. I guess there's um, there's a, a bell curve on this in that there will be an optimum safety wing for your weight. Mm. Uh, so I would imagine that if you're too light, you know, because you mentioned before, you know, the wing loading not being high enough, yeah. uh, wings you don't recover from the collapse quite so well and you're more likely to collapse. Uh, yeah, you'll reach an optimum, but then the increased, um, you know, wing loading causes more uh, quick, dramatic collapses. And, of course, you're talking about higher speeds, more energies uh, uh, and things like that. I, I would read that as an optimum, but but still, the pilots who died had high wing loadings. Now, it, this, this figure could be confounded, so I don't know if you'd know anything about statistics. Anybody lifting out there, uh, there's, there's something that's called a confounder. So because there's a link between the two, doesn't mean there's causality. I'll give you an example of that. We know that people who uh, drink more alcohol are more likely to die, die of lung cancer. Okay. So you think, oh, my God, that means alcohol causes lung cancer. All right. You can see how that people would think that, but it's actually not true. Uh, it's it's linked. It doesn't mean it's it's caused. Now, the the truth of it is, is that people who drink alcohol uh, are more likely to smoke cigarettes. So, the it's the cigarettes that's causing the link lung cancer, not the alcohol. But it's you know it's a linked statistic. Now, it might be the same with um with the high wing loading. So it might not actually be that the high wing loading itself is dangerous, but the people who are flying highly loaded wings are the ones who are flying faster and pushing the limit more. So maybe these are the adrenaline pilots. So it's not the wing that's killing them. It's the kind of flight behavior that's killing them. So uh, so again, that's something that you know, you'd think would would be studied a little bit more. Sounds sounds about right there, Sean. As, as soon as you said it, I was like, it's probably the people flying, you know, the the snakes, the free rides, the warps, um, and and doing that acro sort of stuff because that's normally when you you do find high wing load. If you're a beginner, you're not going to jump on like a 16 meter uh, overloaded overloaded like wing, are you? It's, you're going to fly something that's that's safe and sensible and. You know, actually, you know, launching a high wing loaded wing and so small, you know, it's such a quick takeoff that beginners, you'd be running for days and you'd have no legs left. So, <laughs> so it tends to be, I, I think you're right. You know, it's it's the, the flight profile that, that determines the people who fly those overload, unless you've got something totally wrong. 
Um, and, you know, if you're like self-trained and you've got some wrong bit of information somewhere, um, even if you're not self-trained, you know, these things like they would be pretty rare. But, yeah, I, I would have thought it's people like doing the acro stuff or, you know, high, high um, energy maneuvers. Well, if I add to that statistic, then that the six pilots who died with high wing loadings, all six occurred at low level. The trouble is, mate, is all, all deaths happen at low level, don't they, really? They happen when you hit the ground. But, well, but eventually, but yeah. I think what, what the statistic is saying is that these people were engaged in low-level flight when, uh, when things went wrong. So, so flying fast, high-loaded wings at low level. And that brings us to what we said at the beginning, wasn't it? Those kind of the adrenaline junkie pilots. You're, you're the ones running the risks. Yeah, and does that make paramotoring unsafe is the re- is the real question isn't it because it's it's definitely down to your flying style surely the figures have, have shown that today well i i think so definitely now i it's like i've said with anything you you cannot ameliorate all risk risk is inherent in anything that we do you know sat here right now mate who knows you know one of the ceiling tiles might fall in and, uh, and knock me on the head and you know there, there's risk to everything but it's you know it, it's um control over that risk and it sounds to me like most of the injuries are happening doing things that you can actually uh, you can actually not do so just going back quickly then to um to injuries of parts of the body you know head was seven percent we talked about that pelvis is only 3.1 percent chest is 2.7 percent and the abdomen 0.7 percent you know which is quite encouraging now we were talking about what causes the accidents in the paramotor i'm going back to the 2014 paper accidents and injuries related to power paragliding uh, 11.2% uh, of injuries was caused by the engine. Uh, well, that's 11.2% of injuries to the upper limb, should I say, was uh, okay. was caused by the engine itself. Uh, and we, we talked about that, didn't we? I think I could have squeezed that in. You know, we said it's either a prop strike or it could be the foosh injury. Mm. Power paragliding accidents are more common during... It's a quiz. <laughs> Is it more common during takeoff or landing? Ooh. Um, come on, well, you've always got to land. Yep. So oh, I'm going to go with... Everybody lands somehow. Every, everybody lands <laughs> okay. somehow. I I want to say landing, but I've got a feeling... Is it takeoff? Oh, nobody likes a smart ass. I've told you that before. Is There's it takeoff? There's a reason, Daniel, you're called a young whippersnapper. <laughs> it is indeed, yeah. So power paragliding accidents are more common during takeoff. Has there been a conclusion drawn to that? Like, is it because without taking off, you can't land? Or So... <laughs> So, well, no, I mean, because you, you assume there's the same number of takeoffs as landing. Yeah. Um, you know, well, well, no, there isn't, is there? It's during takeoff. Yeah, actually, that's quite interesting, yeah. isn't it? Because there are more uh, takeoffs than landings. I guess it depends. Have you taken off or haven't you? You know, if mm. you're actually trying to take off um, and you have an accident, uh, is that classed as as a takeoff? I don't know. Now you see, you've you've made me question that statistic. Well, yeah, we want that clarified. Is it an attempted takeoff? Was it an actual yeah. takeoff? <laughs> is it an actual takeoff? You know, because you can have a a hundred attempted takeoffs for every one landing, couldn't you? You can exactly. if you fly from Fat Paramo to HQ. <laughs> and I'm not going to mention any names. A few <laughs> people like taking off from fences, don't they? <laughs> 
He'll appreciate that, Colin. Yeah, yeah I know. That's good. <laughs> well, I, I needed somebody to test the strength of the fence, but there we go. He and definitely so, did that, yeah. <laughs> again, the paper suggested that the energy from the engine and the weight of the equipment may aggravate accidents. We touched on that before. There's no evidence to suggest that's what's happening. That's somebody's interpretation of the evidence. And here, this one is interesting, all right, because we talked about... Um, you know, training or no training, but it says there's no statistically significant correlation was found in our sample between accident severity and the pilot rating. That is interesting. Now, this is interesting because then I think, well, does no rating count as a rating? You know, because I think I did have a look over some of the statistics, but I've not looked at the numbers hard. But I believe, and please don't shoot me now on anybody who, who reads the paper a bit harder, but, um, but I believe these were just talking about rated pilots who have got, you know, different PPG ratings, mm. you know, whether they, I don't know whether they're club pilot and things like that here in the UK, aren't they? I'm, I'm not sure whether they use P1 and P2 like paragliding. I, I did see, and it suggested that somebody who was quite like instructors and things like that were weren't actually any safer than people who were non-instructors. Huh, that's strange. That's interesting, then, Giles. We'll have to have a look at that. So that means that we're not taking any any, any kind of instruction anymore from Chile or Giles Fowler, are we? Is that uh. right? Because now we've decided <laughs> we're just as good as you. <laughs> that's what the statistics say but that's what the statistics say yeah <laughs> i mean uh, l let's just look at that a bit more clearly as well in the wording though it does say between accident severity it doesn't actually say the number of accidents right so it's the severity of the accident you know that would then make me feel do you have any control over how severe an accident is well, yeah well i think it depends on the situation really isn't it if you if you're pushing your like envelope of comfort, say flying like sort of midday and thermals and stuff on a paramotor, then maybe you're going to hit a thermal that's going to knock you sideways. And that could be more severe than sending off like, you know, a lower airtime pilot in, say, you know, two or three mile an hour wind. This is interesting. Now, this is, you see, this is what makes statistics fun. Uh, it's how you interpret them. But it also could be uh, that people generally fly to a certain percentage of their ability. So it evens out. So somebody mm -hmm. who's an amateur is probably flying very, very safe, and they have the same number of severe accidents as somebody who is very experienced, but is flying a higher level of flying, mm. but experiences the same number of severe injuries. So in actual fact, the experience balances out the um, the more dangerous flying. Does that make sense? So that actually might be what the statistic is showing. Um, the amateurs have the same number of severe injuries as the experts, but it might be because the experts are flying, you know, um, I'll say more dangerously, you know, but the flying more expertly. Does Do you understand what I'm saying there, Dan? Fly hard, live fast. <laughs> Fly hard, live fast. <laughs> Yeah, I do find myself, um, I'm definitely no expert, um, but pushing. I know that, the, the, <laughs> uh, and anyone, That's why I invited you uh, to be the co-host, why I look good. <laughs> anyone will see that from like the YouTube videos that I put out. Um, and um, just going back to the, uh, the, the Fat Paramount HQ. Everyone can check out everyone's launches from that on your channel as well, Sean, can't they? Yeah, the Fat yeah, Paramount they... guy. But um, I find myself pushing my envelope of flying because i'm training to do um my first 
proper championship this year. And, you know, I, it comes with a lot more risk. You know, I'm flying midday. There's Gus um, launching and doing practice engine off at 500 feet. You know, I haven't then got that extra bit of kick from a motor if I need to. I probably could restart the atom pretty quickly, but that's a lot more risky than a than a slower airtime pilot coming in for their final glide, yes. killing their engine when they're definitely going to make the field. Um, and, you know, they're not going on cross countries seeking out thermals. Yes. Um, you know, it does make sense, especially from my perspective at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's how I see that. I see this as, uh, as you become more experienced, you enjoy more advanced flight to stay within the same safety window, to stay safe as a... Um, uh, as a novice pilot, you're going to do very simple takeoff and landings, uh, early morning, late evening, those kind of things. And the relative number of accidents is is low. When you're an experienced pilot, you'll be doing, um, you know, far more advanced flying. You'll be flying all weathers. You'll be flying different distances. But your expertise then will result in the same relatively safe flying. So, uh, so being more experienced doesn't mean you have less accidents. It probably means you can enjoy more advanced flying. Yeah, I think that's true. Yes, all, all good stuff there. So the, the the final thing that I wanted to talk about then, Dan, unless you know the you've got any pearls of wisdom you'd, you'd like to bring our way is um, is is paramotoring safer or not than riding a motorcycle? Oh, now that's. A good question. I hope you've got some stats on that, Sean, because I, you know, I quite often, you know, when people ask how much is is it and, oh, is this safe? I normally say, you know, it's about the same price as, as buying like, you know, a big sort of motorbikes, anywhere from like 600cc to a thousand sort of, sort of job and getting your license for that. And I normally say that paramotoring is as safe as you make it it's probably safer than than riding a motorbike because of all the other cars on the road nowadays but prove me wrong am i wrong or am i right sean by saying that because i'm just going off of my own judgment there yeah well the answer to that is um uh, nobody seems to know at the moment so um, <laughs> now uh, now I, to be honest with you i think i could i could have shed more light onto this if there would have been more data uh, released by the BHPA on that paper. And in fairness, they might be. I don't know whether they've got the raw statistics and the raw data, um, you know, because I'm fairly limited. We do this for fun, Dan. I've got a career in things. But yeah. uh, it would be nice to know because I, I needed to know things like, you know, number of pilots, pilot activity and, and things like that. And I could have made a good comparison because there's a bit more data on motorcycles. Um, but But I was unable to. Now, some people have made some rest, rough estimates, uh, and again, I'm looking at a, another website that's you know by paramotor enthusiasts. There's a lot of bias in this, so so it's it's difficult to look. But I will take some of the numbers. They've used uh, numbers from the United States, mm -hmm. and they've made some very rough estimates uh, of certain things, which is. Okay, you can you can do that sometimes in science. It's it's worth doing that to sort of have a look at things. If I take their numbers to be uh, correct, they've said that uh, looking at the statistics of motorcycles, of which there are far more numbers of motorcyclists, there is about 0.7 per every 1,000 participants ends up in a fatality with a motorcycle. 
to less less than one, 0.7 per every thousand. Yeah. And their estimate on this site, and I mean, I, I, I will say that, I mean, it's a bit mean of me to use their statistics, not actually mention them, even though I'm dissing a little bit, but it, it's foot flyer yeah. that I'm looking at. So, because, you know, because I'm using their statistics, I think that is, it's, it's respectful to, to sort of at least cite them in that. Now, they've also said that a paramotor then, based on their, estimates is 0.5 fatalities per thousand participants okay so that would suggest carefully that it might be safer than motorcycling however there's a caveat you see this depends how you use statistics you have to be very very careful and and, uh, how things are presented especially to people who don't understand statistics because people are very very biased interpretation bias you Mm. know uh, in how they see things the issue with that is that more or less says if you are active in paramotoring, for every 1,000 paramotorists, 0.5%. So one in every 2,000 paramotorists yeah. will die, okay? And I think that those are annual statistics. And with motorcycles, you, you're going to get 1.4 every 2,000 who are going to die. Mm. However, when if you are an active paramotorist, how many hours do you actually fly compared to how much the average motorcyclist motorcycles? You know, and what's the average number of flying hours somebody will do in a year? I bet it's not many. You know, mm. I bet you know you're probably uh, one of the higher. I, I don't know, Dan. You know, a lot of people might might do two hours every uh, every, every month. That's twenty four hours of flying mm. a year. And that might be the average. I don't know. It might be 30 hours a year. It might be 50 hours a year. Mm. But I would imagine that motorcyclists motorcycle a lot more because usually it's a mode of transport. It's not just done for pleasure. Mm. So, um, you know, you'd probably find people doing a lot more hours paramotoring. If you could fly your paramotor to work and back every day, Dan, you'd do a lot more hours than you do at the moment with it, wouldn't you? I'd I'd damn do it as well. (laughs) Yeah, you'd damn do it. So it's difficult to really compare. So you can say, well, owning a paramotor gives you an averaged risk of 0.5 per thousand. But if you're only flying an hour a month Mm. and somebody else is flying 100 hours a month, then, you know, if you look at that statistic, it's probably the person flying 100 hours is carrying the Mm. risk. So... If that person flying the paramotor was flying as many hours as the average motorcyclist, you might find that there was multiple times you're more likely to die from your paramotor. Now, I'm saying that only for one reason, just to show you that you can't interpret the data, not to suggest right. that paramotoring is that more dangerous. So, you know, this is what I'm saying. You you can't compare the two. So even though Footflyer have had a good go, I think there's bias in what they're saying. They've landed the bias in favour of, do you know what, paramotoring is safer than motorcycling. I don't think you can draw any conclusions from their guesstimates because the figures just aren't comparable in any way. And I think to actually answer that question, we need some we need some harder data. Uh, and I do think I might be able to answer it a little bit better if we got some more data from the BHPA and even, you know, if we got some uh, some questionnaires about people's flying activity, how many hours they do and things like that. It would be, it would be quite interesting research. Yeah, I think that would be um, 
That'd make quite a good video as well for your channel, Sean. I think we should get onto the BHPA and, and start dishing out those questionnaires. And, you know, there's there's some fairly active people on, on, the, on the Facebook forums and stuff like that. So you're not going to get every single pilot come back to you. But I think that'd be enough of a... Um, uh, group to to draw a conclusion from at least or at least look at it yeah you just need a representative sample that's all when you're doing statistics yeah yeah that's what i was trying to get <laughs> so that would be good so hey so in summary then we've decided that uh, listen paramotoring can be relatively safe but you make it dangerous depending on the on the amount of flying that you do that you can ameliorate the risk of flying the same as riding a motorcycle the same as driving a car by training getting experience being sensible listening to advice those kind of things so you can ameliorate risk we don't know whether it's more dangerous than motorcycling uh, paramotoring the danger tends to be the ground taking off uh, and prop strikes so um, I think that's it anything else we've took from that Dan no I think I think that's everything Sean you know we've we've gone through we've given our own experiences we've looked at the data and uh, I think you can't really argue argue with that let's let's hope we get some more data soon so we can hopefully revisit this as well and get some hard facts let's do that indeed so brilliant so anyway Dan <laughs> Oh, it's been fantastic again, Thank hasn't you, it? Do you know, I do love these chats and stuff. So this was the Fat Paramotor Podcast. Not even the podcast. This was the Fat Paramotor Podcast. In the studio, Daniel Jones, of course. Don't forget to set, check Daniel Jones out. He's got an absolutely amazing YouTube channel. Uh, he's been doing some video series on cross-country flying recently. Uh, I was the Fat Paramotor Guy. Check out my YouTube channel. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye, Dan. See you all soon.